0: Of course! We are dead! We are all dead! We were supposed to make the world
1: a better place. What
0: happened? Well, I am as brag as hell, and
1: I am not gonna take this anymore! I know Kung Fu.
0: You either die a hero, or you live long enough to see yourself become the villain. I am as brag as hell, and I am not gonna take this anymore! This whole thing is insane! This whole thing
2: is insane! 300 years ago, you'd have been burned at a stake. What do all men of power want? More power. This is now the United
0: States of Zombieland. This whole thing is insane. Man is even
2: capable of nothing but destruction. Everybody is stuck with the things that they're not proud of. More power. Welcome to the desert the real More power. there can be only one. Are you a God-fearing man, Senator? That's such a strange phrase. I've always thought of God as a teacher, as a bringer of light, wisdom and understanding. You see, I think what you really are afraid of is me.
1: Happy heresies and welcome to the desert of the real. Heresy shouldn't be this much fun, but it is, it just is. Especially with the latest AB Live. Audio version for thee in this eternal, now in this red pill cafeteria. It was a delight to host Ralph Ellis at the Virtual Alexandria, especially as he shared from his book, Mary Magdalene, Princess of Orange. Get ready for a fascinating investigation of the origins and adventures of Mary. What was her true identity? Did she really end up in France? Why was her story suppressed? And is this censorship part of a more extensive global propaganda? Let's find out. Not much else. Please support if you find value in this show as I figure things out on how to reconnect faltering support with exploding viewership, if it's possible. And keep in mind that the speaker schedule for the Astronosis Conference 2, Meet the Archons, is finally here. Join us as we delve into the mysteries of the cosmos and discover how to fight off the Archons. With an amazing lineup of speakers, You won't want to miss out on this incredible experience. Get your tickets now and secure your spot at the conference. Hope to see you there at the end of June on John the Baptist Feast Day. Other than that, let us to our latest A.B. Live. Write your own gospel, live your own myth. Welcome everybody to A B Live, and welcome to, to AM Bite. My name is Miguel Connor, and I am still your pompetus of Gnosis, that madman across the waters of creation. And there's something about Mary, the woman who knew the all, as the dialogue of the savior says, the one who had gnosis. And on this show, we can never get enough of the bride of the logos. So uh, today we have uh, we will definitely be concentrating on Mary with an overdue guest, someone who's done incredible research on the history behind the history for ancient Christianity and beyond, and that is Ralph El- Ralph Ellis. Ralph, thank you very much for coming on the show.
2: Very good to be with you, Miguel. Um, quite an honor. Thank you
1: honor is all ours yes and for the audience we'll be focusing on ralph's excellent book mary magdalene princess of orange good book definitely should get it and uh, put it on your uh, shelf with all the other divine feminine and uh, heroines of of ancient times as we've done on the show there are actually quite a few if you really think about it and with us too we've got the moon dog vance vance how are you doing on this Freya day or in Latin countries, day of Jupiter.
0: Oh, I'm excited about this because Mary Magdalene is one of my favorite characters. uh, You know, the Mary Magdalene we're about to hear about. So, you know, wise person and it makes up for all the misogyny of the orthodox centuries, right? Putting women down. So women are so intuitive So it's natural that Mary Magdalene uh, is actually as portrayed as, I believe, Ralph is going to tell us.
1: Oh, indeed. Agreed 100%. Well, awesome. Well, people are going into the chat room, as always, or definitely moving on. Please super chat your questions for Ralph and we'll get to them or any comments that you have. We will put them on the board. Uh, We want to hear your voice because you guys usually, always, not even usually, come up with some excellent questions. And other than that, uh, great shows coming up next week. Uh, In a way, we will continue the theme as next week we'll have a normal podcast, uh, an audio podcast with the amazing John Michael Greer, where he talks about the Cathars, the Holy Grail, the Nassines, and puts it together, how... These groups were basically smuggling this ancient mystery rites from Eleusinian, the the mysteries of the Eleusinian mysteries. And this was actually a tech, not just for spiritual growth, but also for healing the land. And then after that, we should have David Block joining us in a week to do his third in his series about these enigmatic deities. Lucifer, Prometheus, uh, Azazel and all that. So a lot of good content coming and I really appreciate those of you who support this podcast. If you find value, help out. We need your help more than ever. So uh, I can't think of any other uh, housekeeping right now. So let's get to the meat of the matter. Well, Ralph, tell us about uh, how you came interested in writing this book and in Mary Magdalene, or a little bit about your work in general.
2: Yes, well, I've been writing since, uh, well, 40 years, I suppose. Uh, The first chapter I wrote for my Jesus' Last of the Pharaohs, I wrote when I was 14. It wasn't published until much later, of course, so I've been interested in these topics for a long, long time. Um, Started off with the Old Testament. Um, because I saw some similarities with the historical record there. And then I moved on to the New Testament, because we have the same problem in the New Testament. All of these characters are missing from the historical record. You know, Jesus, Saul, Mary Magdalene, Mary the, uh, uh, Mary the Mother, all missing from the historical record. Now, hmm, reading the New, New Testament, it seemed to be sort of historical to me. But the problem was nobody can find these people in, in history. And uh, eventually I found this, well, I suppose I found this, the beginnings of this back in 1997 with my Jesus last of the pharaohs, where I, I, I sort of looked at the Gospels looking for Saul, St. Paul. And, okay, it's a long story. We won't go into it now, but I believe St. Paul is Josephus Flavius. Now, that changes a a great deal of things because it makes the gospel story more historical, because now we have a historical author. Um, The two lives of these two people match very closely, very closely indeed. The only thing that changes is the date. So we're no longer talking about AD 20s and AD 30 crucifixion. We're now talking about AD 60s and an AD 70 crucifixion. Because there was a very famous crucifixion in AD seventy, um, and that's all to do with the Jewish revolt. And then, of course, having written all of these books, the the nature and the the historicity of Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother came came up. Now they're much harder. To actually investigate, because we, we we sort of run into mythology very quickly rather than real history. Um, but there was quite a lot of information that could be found, and so I was tr- uh, I, I was looking at this information and trying to trace her history back into France. Um, but the first thing that really I suppose came up was was following on from my other books that these were important people. Okay, we're not talking about a pauper prince of peace. We're not talking about shepherds. uh we're talking about very important people. and uh one of the things that came up and uh, this is not really my work, this is uh from the talmud and, and from Professor Robert Eisenman um and he identified um Mary Magdalene as being Mary bothus, Mary and Martha both us. And that was very interesting, and he goes into this in some detail with an awful lot of evidence from the Talmud. But that changes everything, and it changes everything so much that when I congratulated um, uh, Professor Eisenman about this, he said, "No, no, no, I'm not saying that they are the same person. Um, I'm only saying that they base the history and the life of Mary Magdalene upon Mary Bothus." Um. And the reason he says that is that Mary Bothus is an 80s, 60s character. We're back in the 80s, 60s again, as often is the case when you, you start looking at this. Um, but I think he's actually right, although he can't grasp the uh, the end of his research, that they are this one and the same person. Because Mary Bothus happens to be the richest woman in the Near East in the first century. So here is a woman who had a dowry when she got married. And, of course, Mary Bothas married Jesus. Her husband was Jesus, Jesus of Gamala, Gamala Sophias, who became the high priest of Jerusalem. Again, like Hebrews 7 says that Jesus was high priest. Um, So Mary Bothas, when she got married, she had a dowry of one million gold denarii. She was the richest woman in the Near East. That's in, in today's money, that's um, approximately 20 billion dollars.
1: Wow, just but as Ralph, a dowry. Ralph, uh, no. Why was she rich? She came from a lo- uh, royal line. I'm sure she wasn't uh, dealing with Bitcoin, <laughs> it had to be <laughs> nobility, right? She came <clears> from nobility.
2: Yeah, she came from the nobility. Now, um, her father, in this case, um, will be Simon Bothus. Mm. And remember from the Gospels that Mary and Martha lived at the house of Simon. Yeah, that's true. And the father of Mary and Martha Bothus was Simon, Simon Bothus. Uh, you know, this all matches very closely. But of course, the Gospels and the priesthood will not admit, of course, to Mary and Martha being the daughters of Simon Bothus because. He was one of the very richest of the aristocrats <clears throat> within um, Judea and Syria. And he was also involved in the Jewish revolt. Um, there were three major aristocrats who controlled the, the wood, uh, the wheat, the food, and uh, the oil. And, of course, they were like the oil magnets and the uh, coal and oil magnets today. Um, you can't live without oil. You cannot live without wood. And so they controlled these uh, products, and they were immensely wealthy. Um, so Mary Bothas' uh, bedclothes uh, were worth 12,000 gold denarii. That was just a bedclothes, for goodness wow. sake. Um, So, And she married, as I say, she married uh, uh, Jesus, Jesus of Gamala, uh, Gamala Sophias. And Jesus of Gamala was the leader of 600 rebel fishermen. Now, who was the leader of fishermen in the uh, first century? I think we can guess who that was. And uh, Mary bought the high priesthood for her husband. Um, which is pretty much what Hebrews seven says, because of course Jesus became high priest. How did he do so? He was not a Levite. Well, the Talmud says that uh, Mary Bothus bought the high priesthood with a tarkub of silver, and it depends how much you measure a tarkub as being. A tarkub is like a vessel, but it's something like you know, twenty-five kilos of silver or something. I mean, it's a lot of silver. Might be as high as seventy-five kilos of silver and that's how he became high priest mm-hmm. but of course after um after after the jewish revolt so these people were involved in the jewish revolt which was ad 66 to ad 70 um they lost they lost that revo- revolt and so we get these um uh, allusions to mary losing all of her money after the jewish revolt so uh from the talmud it says Uh, Rabbi Yohanan, so Yohanan was the sort of high high priest of uh, Judaism after the Jewish revolt, uh, left Jerusalem riding upon an ass. Well, he's sort of mimicking Jesus there, of course. While his disciples followed him, and he saw a girl picking barley grains from among the dung of Arab cattle. As soon as she saw him, she wrapped herself with her hair now, that's indicative of Mary Magdalene, of course, because quite often in, in Renaissance art, she's shown full of hair, of course, covering her body. And we'll go into why that is in a minute. Um, And and uh, she said, Master, uh, she said to him, feed me. My daughter, says Rabbi Yohanan, who are you? She replied, I am Mary, the daughter of Bothas Nicodemus. My daughter, he said to her. What has become of the wealth of your father's house? So we can see this highly aristocratic and probably royal family being laid low after the Jewish revolt, losing all of their money and their property. And this is, of course, why that Mary eventually had to go on a, uh, a voyage to Provence in France, because they'd lost all of their wealth. Um, Royal families and aristocrats play these games, you know, but if you lose, you've got a lot to lose. (laughs) And they lost. So they lost the Jewish revolt and they all went into exile. Um, So, yeah, that was one of the first things I found about the Mary Magdalene character, that she might have been highly aristocratic um, and and probably royal, but I mean, this has been known about, I mean, this is not new. Some people criticize my work and saying, oh, you're, you know, you're, you're running out on a limb with this. You know, nobody else talks about this. But the golden legend, which comes out of the 14th century, says exactly the same. Uh, the golden legend uh, says that Mary Magdalene had uh, the surname of uh, Magdalo, meaning a castle, and she was born of right noble lineage. And her parents were descended from the lineage of kings. And her father was named Cyrus, and her mother was Eucharist. And uh, her brother was Lazarus, and her sister was Martha. And they possessed castles of Magdalo and Bethany, and also a greater part of Jerusalem. Okay, so this is a family that owns, like, I don't know. 25, 30% of Jerusalem.
1: Um,
2: And it goes on to say, all of these things they shared among them so that Mary owned the castle at Magdalene, Lazarus owned the uh, part of the city of Jerusalem, and Martha had her part of Bethany. So it's plainly saying, and this is going back into the uh, medieval era, that these people were rich and aristocratic. They knew all about it in that time. Um, and they probably knew about it courtesy of the Crusades and the Knights Templar that had found all of this information okay. uh, back in the 12th century. Um, that's why there was such a flowering of this information at that time, because a lot of this information was um, was not available to people. All we had was what was given to us by the Catholic Church. Um, but, of course, when they went to the East, the East had been cut off from Western Christianity by the Council of Nicaea, the Council of Chalcedon, and by the Iron Curtain of Islam. And so the the Western church could do nothing about what they were writing about in the East. And so the Eastern church held different traditions, um, different information, different chronicles. And that's where most of this information came from uh, during the medieval era. Ralph, right, um, if
1: you don't mind me interrupting you, because some might be asking, no, what you're saying makes sense. Royal family, Mary and Jesus, uh, even uh, some—I forget who said—Doctor uh, Carrier wrote, or Richard Carrier wrote about this idea of making people poor, whether it's Mohammed or Jesus or Peter, is ridiculous. In ancient times, if you wanted to be heard, you had to be educated and have money. You had to, you know, you just didn't get on social media; and people would listen to you. So you had to know the Torah. <clears throat> You had to have money, so it makes sense that these figures were educated and had clout. But my question is, is, it makes sense, but how, and then they scatter after the Jewish war, and correct me if I'm wrong, but how does a religion just fall on top of this chaos, the religion of Christianity as it would be known?
2: Well, Christianity had nothing to do with Jesus, of course. Um, Jesus was a Nazarene Jew. Um, who would not let one jot or tittle of the uh, Judaic law um, be changed. Um, G- Christianity came from St. Paul, uh, who I always call Saul because that's his proper name. So Saul yeah. was the instigator of this because Saul um, had been on an evangelical tour uh, with Barnabas and they'd gone round and been beaten and stoned and whatever. And he came back and the council of... um Uh, Council of Jerusalem, Uh, he said to James, the brother of Jesus, look, um, can I preach to the Gentiles? Because he got a lot of interest from the Gentiles about this Nazarene style of Judaism, which I call Egypto-Judaism, because it's it's not really anything to do with modern Judaism. Um, And James said, yeah, for some strange reason. And he said, yeah, okay. these are the four tenets of simple Judaism. Um, don't eat animals uh, that have been sacrificed to idols, don't uh, eat animals that have been strangled, don't drink blood, and don't indulge in fornication. And that was it. The whole of Mosaic law went out of the window. You've got four simple rules of simple Judaism, and that is what Saul was teaching on his second tour uh, of, of the Mediterranean. And he became the apostle to the Gentiles, as he says himself. Now, because he had a much larger larger audience, he gained a lot more followers. You know, the Nazarene church of Jesus and James was only preaching to the Jews, whereas Saul could uh, preach to the whole of the Roman Empire. And so he became more and more powerful, more and more rich as he got more and more followers. And his church actually became um, larger and stronger and more powerful than the Church of Jesus and James. And, of course, because of the Jewish revolt and their involvement in that, um, the Nazarene Church was was, uh, persecuted by the Romans because they started a revolt against Rome, whereas the Church of Saul was pro-Roman, Pay your Roman taxes, turn the other cheek. It was brilliant. You know, it's exactly what Rome wanted. Obey your Roman masters because they are servants of God. This was just perfect. So, Rome promoted the simple Judaism uh, of Saul and persecuted. So, the the only persecution that was going on uh, was against the Nazarene church of Jesus and James. Um, And so, it was from the simple Judaism of um, of Saul that we get Christianity.
1: No, that makes sense. Not and from talking- the Church
2: of Jesus and James,
1: right? And so you said uh, uh, two questions or one qu- double question: uh, Egypto Judaism. What's the connection of Mary and Jesus to Egypt? And with Paul or Saul, we're talking mystery religion in Tarsus. Is that what he adopted Mithras and all those? all that kind of vibe and brought it into Judaism?
2: Yes. Um, well, there are many connections, of course. I mean, if we go into great detail, um, my Jesus King of Edessa book actually says that he was related to the Egyptian royal line, but we won't go into that. Uh, just from the Gospels, Jesus went to Egypt for his education. Right. Um, you know, he was there for his youth. That's when you are educated. Uh, and, of course, they make it out that he fled there, of course. But if he was a prince, and I'm I'm saying that Jesus was a real king, he's called a king on 36 occasions, he was the king of the Jews. Uh, if he was a real king, so a real prince at that time, of course he would go to Egypt because that's where you would go for your, your education. The greatest university um, of Rome was in Alexandria. Right. That's where you'd go for your education. Uh, that's why it says in the Gospels, out of Egypt I have called my son. Uh, that's why he was known in the works of Josephus and in the Gospels themselves as the Egyptian false prophet. Now, I've I've had backlash from some critics who are saying, oh, Ellis says that Jesus was the Egyptian false prophet. Well, of course he was. It was the Egyptian false prophet who took the 5,000 out into the wilderness. Now, who did mm-hmm. that? Uh, it was the Egyptian false prophet who took uh, the band of followers and apostles out onto the Mount of Olives for a midnight meeting that was interrupted by the um, Roman guard. Now, mm. who did that? Okay, that was Jesus. So we can be pretty sure that the Egyptian false prophet was a mention of Jesus by obviously his enemies who didn't like him. So they called him the Egyptian false prophet because he was something to do with Egypt and i say he was related to the um uh, egyptian royal line but we won't go into that today um and he was educated in egypt so he would have had he would have had the um the secret knowledge the sacred knowledge that comes out of egypt this is why the talmud says that jesus came out of egypt with the sacred name of of god tattooed upon his thigh okay they don't teach that much in christianity but that's what the talmud says because again it's saying that he came out with secret knowledge from uh egypt um and um yeah he came out with some i mean some of it we we have we have the um uh the water to wine miracle now given as a miracle of course in the gospels but this was a well-known trick within egypt it was created by uh, Hero of Alexandria, or Heron of Alexandria, who was the uh, mechanikos they called him, the um, Leonardo da Vinci of the first century, who made all of these wonderful machines, you know, including steam turbines and water pumps for a fire engine and God knows what, singing birds, all these sort of things. But one of his um, most famous tricks, and, and one of the tricks that he liked to do uh, the most, he made four different examples was making trick jugs that turn water into wine. Now, these are well known if you study history. And yet, of course, they're never going to preach this from the pulpit. They say it's a miracle. No, it was a trick jug by Huron of Alexandria. You have a a standard um, pewter sort of jug, um, and it has two compartments in it. And you have a thumb hole in the handle. And depending on whether you cover the hole or open the hole, you either pour from one compartment or the other compartment. So you can pour wine or water, depending on what you want. Uh, That's great. It was highly technical. It depended on water surface tension and suction and hydraulics and all this sort of stuff, uh, siphonic action. So it was a very complicated little device. But it was made to... um, to amaze the aristocracy and to amaze the the people if it was done by the priesthood, but it was mainly an aristocratic thing. You can imagine these were supremely expensive, these these toys, Um, and you you use them at your wedding to amaze your guests, which is exactly what he did at the wedding at (laughs) Cain. Fits so well. And of course, that trick came out of Egypt. I mean, this is why you know we sort of know he was a prince of Egypt. This is where he got all of this uh, information and technology from.
1: but Ralph, people are talking about what about Mary? would she also would have gone to Egypt for different teachings or
2: well she was known as Mary of egypt, so yes i'm i'm uh, i'm very much um yeah i i I think she was now, I want to perhaps drop another um bombshell, I suppose uh Mary was probably Jesus's sister mm-hmm. because that was the common thing to have a sibling marriage oh. uh, King Agrippa the did when he married, as it were, uh um, Berenike, who was his sister uh Queen Helena, who is central to this o story that i'm uh, I often talk about, she was married to her brother um and we also have from uh, Saul. Saul says in 1 Corinthians 9.5, he says, uh, and it, um, who's he talking to? I forget who he's talking to. But anyway, he says, have we not the power to lead about a sister wife as well as the other apostles do and as the brethren of the Lord and Cephas, uh, Cephas is Peter, do. So Saul is asking for a sister wife because the other apostles all have sister wives. Um, Now, if you read this in many Bibles, especially if you get the American Standard, which is a rotten Bible, um, it'll say something like a sister and a wife because they want to cover it up. But that's not what it uh, actually says. Uh, It's in Adelphi Gurney, I think, if I remember correctly, in the Greek. Um, If you want to find out what it really says, you need a Bible like the... um, uh oh gosh which is it i've forgotten for a minute i'll, f- I'll remember in a minute um no there are two um literal bibles they call them a D- the darby is one of them the darby bible which is a literal bible which has a direct translation from the greek uh you will find that many bibles they actually try and interpret what the greek is actually saying And because they don't understand the underlying information that they're trying to interpret, they often interpret wrongly, like saying a sister and a wife or a a sacred wife or something like that. They translate it very badly. But if you look at the Derby and the Rotherham is the other one, the Rotherham Bible, they will say a sister wife um, because that's what the royalty used to do. They used to keep it in in the family just like all of the pharaohs of egypt kept it in the family just like cleopatra of egypt she married both of her brothers um this was standard within the royal family and again it rather shows that these people were royal if they were keeping it in the family and having a sister wife
1: No, that, yeah, that definitely makes any sense. What do you think, Vance, question from you or comment?
0: Yeah, one question I had is uh, when you mentioned one of the laws that Saul uh, put forth was uh, against fornication, was that all
2: relations with women or just outside of a marriage? No, what what they tend to mean by fornication is this problem of the um, sister-wife and things of that nature. Um, This was okay for the aristocracy but they didn't want the laity all doing this as well. There was a Saul in the epistles complains about people sleeping with their mothers and things of this nature. So they were trying to prevent that amongst the laity. But within the royalty, of course, it was de rigueur. That's what they uh, always did within the royalty because they had to keep the bloodline pure in their terms. And that's what they did. Um, So, yeah, that's what that tends to mean. I wonder what they thought about their bloodlines and where they originated you know the
0: from the nephilim from the old testament or you know some, some sort of beyond human
2: source or the, you know that
0: connected to god um, or
2: what they i don't know if they take it back that far but i think the nazarene the nazarene we have from um some of these um contrarian uh commentators They say of the Nazarene that they uh, venerated the primeval Adam. And the primeval Adam was a uh, hermaphrodite. Uh, Might have been androgynous, but anyway, uh, I think they say hermaphrodite. Um, So a a non-male and non-female ancestor. Um, I get the feeling that when they're talking about that, because we don't know who this primeval Adam was, um, I think they're talking about Pharaoh Akhenaten. Because if you look at Pharaoh Akhenaten, he is androgynous. He has no genitalia. He has sort of wide hips of a woman, a small bust, and a very strange shaped body, etc. I think they're talking about Akhenaten because Akhenaten was the first of the monotheists. Uh, He was something to do with this royal line because the god of uh, Israel is called the Arden, and the god of Akhenaten was called the Arden or the Ardon so the the, is the israelite god name is the same god name as akhenaten was using so we can be sure that they knew about akhenaten there was something to do with akhenaten i mean uh, psalms psalm 104 i think it is is a copy of the hymn to the artem written by akhenaten himself that's in the bible um, so we know that it's connected with this. And uh, I go through this as being one of the Exodus events is connected with the Exodus of Akhenaten. Um, okay. And I say a lot more about this as well. But uh, yeah, if if we're looking at the primeval, primeval Adam that they used to venerate, uh, then I think we're going back as far as into Egypt. We're talking about Pharaoh Akhenaten and Nefertiti uh the two naked lovebirds in the garden of the artem um that's where hey, a lot of it comes from uh, um, You're
0: singing my tomb because i've always thought there was a connection between akhenaten and you know the hebrews afterwards yeah
2: migration well their, their exodus is the same um yeah. we have this from manifo i don't want to go off topic too much but the exodus is uh of the hyksos and the exodus is um of akhenaten there were two exodus events Um, Are the same. And of course, you know, the the brother of Akhenaten was called Moses. So you get the two brothers, you get uh, Aaron and Moses and Akhenaten and his brother was called Moses. (laughs) Um, So uh, the history fits very well. Amazing. um, And explains quite a lot. Thanks.
1: That's great. Yeah, Freud got it. Freud got it. Well, he was a little. Yeah, off, Freud but he got, got it, it first. Yeah. He <laughs> yeah, wrote Moses
2: and Monotheism. Uh, <laughs> so, yeah, this information has been out there for a long, long time. And, you know, people still criticize me for it. But this uh, information has been gestating, you might say, because I don't think Freud got all of the information, but he certainly got the foundations of yeah, it yeah. Uh, and set people on the right path. That's for sure yeah I think we have a super
1: chat right Vince? we do let me put it up there and yeah let me thank you Brett for the support and the question is yeah love the program as always I look forward to every interview you're headed for a thousand subs I doubt it I am embrace I am being suppressed by the algorithms but we will keep fighting my burning question is for you Ralph did Mary go by any other names
2: uh yes she did um I'm just trying to think about this because I, um, you know, I don't read this book very often. I read it to, uh, yesterday and today, and I'm yeah. thinking, oh, that's good. Who wrote this? Oh, <laughs> you
1: <Yeah. who laughs> didn't do um, too bad of a job. So <laughs> I'm, I'm going to give yeah. him a good Amazon review <laughs> when I go there.
2: I've not read it for 10 years, and I'm <laughs> thinking, God, oh, there's a lot of good information here that I've forgotten about <laughs> completely. Um, but, yes. Miriam, um, Mariamne, I, something a related name maybe? Well, she had many. uh, A lot of these people had titles, so she was known as the Mari Star, Stella Maris, and things of that nature, the Sea Star. Um, So, by being the Sea Star, she was actually the uh, an incarnation of Isis, Aphrodite. Um, She was the um, the Queen of Heaven. But these were titles that were thrown down the ages and so that um, uh, her mother would have been, her, her grandmother would have been called Orania, in in my view, this family that came out of Egypt and out of uh, Persia. Uh, the, the family name was Orania, meaning the heavens. So she was the queen of heaven, the queen of the stars, the queen of Sheba. The queen of Sheba means the queen of the stars in Egyptian. Um, and these were the titles that these people had. And um, that's why, uh, perhaps if I can show some images, that's why we get these share screen. We get these. Well, you want to do it or I can do it? Yeah, I was just going to do it here, if you don't sure. mind. Sure. Uh, of course. But I've got to move it into the same screen otherwise it won't pick it up so let me just quickly do this uh i had it on the wrong page okay so now if we do that again so share screen share screen share a window share that one and okay that should be coming all right
1: Uh, So, yeah, that's my
2: Mary Magdalene book. Um, The next photo is just showing that um, she's always dressed as a queen, of course, because she really was royal. And she's dressed in gold, which is important. Uh, We'll come on to that in just a few seconds. Um, And she is the queen of the stars. And, of course, she is the queen of the stars because she is the queen of Sheba. The queen is the queen... Queen of Sheba is the queen of heaven. Sheba in Egyptian means star. So she's the queen of the stars. And note, there is one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve stars. Hmm. Mm. We'll we'll see why that is in a minute. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So here she is again. This is Magdalene because she's in gold. Uh this is why you can swap between the two Marys, because these titles went down through history. Um, so the uniform of these ladies is if you see green and gold or green and orange, that's Mary Magdalene. So in this case, they've got the Magdalene um, with the uh, stars around her head and the moon in blue. Um, so uh, that comes from... Let me just quickly look that up. Uh, Revelations 12.1, I forgot what the verse was. The verse uh, says, um, there appeared a great wonder in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, and the moon under her feet and upon her head was a crown of 12 stars. So that's what they're indicating here. It comes from the book of Revelations. And uh, who was the... Goddess who had stars round her head and was identified with the moon. Um, that was Isis. Of course, who is Astarte? Who is uh, Aphrodite? Who is Venus? So this is um, Mary, in this case, Magdalene, being um, being pictured as Aphrodite. Um, but then we go. The more common imagery is this one. This is a very Catholic romantic. <laughs> <laughs> now, this is Mary, the mother, because she's in blue and white. And uh, that's the uniform difference between the two of them. Um, again, with the 12 stars and she's yeah. standing on the moon. And, and the you'll ra- see this in a lot of cathedrals. Away, this too. comes from Ljubljana. This is way down, you know, um, in the former Yugoslavia. And again, she's standing on the moon. This is Mary, the, Mary, the mother. Um, as Isis, as Aphrodite. Um, and of course, in Greek terms, she is Arania. And this is the Greek Orania who again is the queen of heaven, as it were. She is a muse, the muse of heaven. And you can see the stars uh, above her head. And she's in the blue and white because she's in the blue and white of the uh, a summer's day of blue with white clouds. She is the queen of heaven. Um, and so I was going to show another one, um, before going to that somewhere here, we have a Zodiac. Uh, I don't know if people know that the primary symbol of Nazarene Judaism was the Zodiac. Because that's yeah. not taught very much. I didn't find out about this immediately. It took a long time before I found out about this. But all over uh, Judea there are these ancient zodiacs um, and they're they're in synagogues. they they're Judaic, these are Nazarene Judaic. This one's on the Sea of Galilee. this is the Hamat Tavera syna, um, synagogue. And you can see it's a standard zodiac in a synagogue with Helios in the in the center. And Helios is holding a blue-green spherical earth in his gravitational grasp. So they understood the um heliocentric model of the solar system. This was the level of Egyptian knowledge that they held oh. within wow. these families. And strangely enough, this um this zodiac was owned by Jesus. Jesus of Gamala Sophias, the same guy that we were right. just been talking about, who was married to Mary Both. He owned this one. We, we have that from uh, Josephus Flavius tells us so because Josephus Flavius, the Jewish historian, was sent to uh, Tiberius on the Sea of Galilee to destroy this Zodiac because it had heretical images of animals on it. You can see how difficult, difficult, yeah. <laughs> how different Nazarene Judaism was from standard classical Judaism because the Jude uh judaic authorities in jerusalem wanted this um zodiac destroyed and that's why josephus went there to destroy it but before they got there um they burnt the palace down so josephus would never find it um and yeah, for the uh,
1: audience, uh, real quick, talking about Nazarene Judaism, if you guys get a chance, Tobias Churton in his book on John the Baptist makes a really good case that the Nazarene Judaism was actually sort of an order, Vance was talking about bloodlines, looking for Nephilim and other evil, making sure this stuff stayed away from humanity. So I think this is all tying in because, of course, they would have to know magic and astrology.
2: Yeah, and, and they were different, of course, because they wore their hair long. They they were from the Nazarites, right. uh, from the Old Testament. So it's a very old um, form of Judaism. And uh, they didn't grow their hair. Sorry, they didn't cut their hair. So they had long hair and beards, just like the Edesan royal family had long hair and, and beards. Mm-hmm. Um, and they were the separated ones. They they the Nazarene means to separate and by separate, I think what they mean is like the, um, group at, down at Qumran, the Essenes, a group of people who separate off into so like a convent or, a, um, a monastery and they separate themselves off from the world, you know, to dedicate themselves to God and think, you know, a bit like John the Baptist sort of thing, you know? Right, of course. Um, and so I, I, th- that is basically what the Nazarene were. And the the matriarch um, of this family, no, the one down from the matriarch, Queen Helena, she became a Nazarene Jew. Uh, we have this from uh, the Talmud, tells us so. So, yeah, the, this, this family were Nazarene Jews. Um, but going back to the Mary figure, so we have this Mary figure who's identified with the moon, of course. And we get that in early Christian monasteries. So here's a monastery. This is from, again, the Sea of Galilee. This is the Betshian Zodiac mm-hmm. in a Christian monastery. This is about 6th century, Um, uh, again, on the Sea of Galilee. Um, And what they've done, we've just seen the Zodiac they had, again, on the Sea of Galilee uh this one they've changed it slightly so that it's it's calendrical so i don't know if you can read it round the edges here all of these men are named after months so on the left here we've got aprilos Mayos, unios and then on the right we've got octobros so it's, it's the months of the year but of course the months of the year and the um signs of the zodiac go round together in the night sky so the one is Commensurate with the other. Um, But note in the center, we have a man and a woman dressed as the sun and the moon. Now, who is the moon? Well, we've already seen who the moon is. That's Mary the Mother or Mary Magdalene um, with 12 stars round her head. Why 12 stars? Well, because there are 12 signs of the zodiac um, around the royal couple who sit at the center of the zodiac, in this case, a calendrical zodiac in a monastery um, on the Sea of Galilee. So that is the basis of their religion. You can see how different this religion is to standard classical Judaism that we know today. It was quite different. And of course, if you remember that um, 12 stars around her head with the blue cloak. Where did that go to? Uh, well, it went to the EU, of course. Mm-hmm. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> the, the EU flag was based upon, and the the guy who designed it um, actually admitted this, that he based it upon the 12 stars that circle the head of Mary, the um, mother. Um, so the EU is actually based on the tenets of, well, the sort of astrological and astronomical tenets of Christianity. It's one and the same. For a while, they 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 tried to make out that uh, there were 12 nations within the EU, um, but then, of course, the number of nations in the EU got bigger and bigger and bigger, <laughs> and the flag oh, yeah. remained the same. <laughs> so, yeah, this is <clears throat> 12 gold stars on a blue background is the flag of the EU. Um so yeah that's a sort of interesting introduction to mary and her imagery um i don't know should we continue with um mary and the skull
1: yeah let's hear it the, yeah, the more Why symbolism not, we can... we're here yeah, yeah. <laughs>
2: um here's mary and uh as i said they have a uniform so mary the mother is blue and white um, whereas Mary Magdalene is green and gold or green and orange. So this is the Magdalene. She's in gold. And you'll see she has red hair. She always has ginger hair. And she always has either a, a jar, a stone jar, an alabaster jar, or a skull. And in this case, you can see a skull in her left hand. Uh, and this is ubiquitous for Mary. Here's another one with the skull in her right hand. Uh, What color is her? she's got a red dress, but blue as a cloak. That's not standard. Again, she's got a skull there. This is a more modern one from the 19th century, holding a skull. Um, This is going back in time a bit, Uh, holding a skull i think we've seen that one already haven't we i'm not sure Mm, here's here's another one so you get the idea mary holding a skull and it gives an idea of the symbolism of of, which is what we find in these um ancient imagery Uh, most of this is um from the medieval era or renaissance era uh there is symbology, and you've got to try and understand what the symbology is. And um, the symbology of the skull um, well, we have a couple of options here. Um,
1: she wasn't auditioning for Macbeth. We can put that off the (laughs) tape.
2: No, it certainly wasn't Macbeth, no. No, sorry. Um,
1: I'm getting the wrong. I'm even (laughs) getting the wrong Shakespeare. Hamlet. She wasn't auditioning for Hamlet.
2: (laughs) Yeah, it was. It was Hamlet, wasn't it? It was in Denmark, yes. Um, So Mary with a skull. Well, if if you read um, uh, something in in an art gallery, they'll say it's the penitent Mary. Uh, She's contemplating her mortality, And that's why she's holding a skull. Um, But I I don't believe it's that at all. It's because uh, in Latin, a skull is a calvaria, calvary. Um, In Hebrew, it's Golgotha. Mm -hmm. And so, of course, Jesus was actually crucified at Golgotha or Calvary, which is the place of the skull. So quite simply, this is just Mary uh, Magdalene indicating where her loved one was um, mm. was crucified, at the place of the skull. And that's why she's holding a skull. But just to add to that a little bit, in in France, in, in later centuries, uh, Falion, who was one of the French uh, poets and so on, he wrote... Um, about the city of Orange and so on that we're going to talk about maybe later. Um, He said it was a potentate, a a, a vessel of the head. Well, because it's a skull, it's a vessel of the head. But, of course, in French, a potentate is a potentate, a queen. So he's making this wonderful play on words that Mary Magdalene was a queen. A potentate. Um, And so you see this wordplay all over the place um, within uh, medieval and Renaissance uh, artwork. Um, The other one we get, of course, is that Mary, again with her flame red hair, uh, is always holding a vessel. Now, this one, she seems to be holding a grail, which is not standard. It's normally something like this where she's holding a unguent jar. She is the the woman with the alabaster jar, and you can see the alabaster jar on the left there. Um, And again, Mary Magdalene, she's in gold as usual. Um, She is the lady with the alabaster jar because she was the um, uh, lady um, who... Anointed Jesus with spikenard, right. with oil. Um, and and again, we get uh, different interpretations of this. But I think there's only one interpretation you can have um, from Matthew. Uh, when was that? Matthew twenty six six, I think it is. It says, "When Jesus was in Bethany at the house of Simon." So again, they're at a house of Simon, which is Simon Bothus, the richest man in the Near East, but they won't tell you that. Um, there came a, a woman having an alabaster box of precious ointment and poured it on his head as they sat to eat. So here is the anointing of Jesus by a woman. Again, they're always covering up things. They're, they're never <laughs> honest. Um, and you have to go down to... Um, Well, they're at the House of Simon, and the House of Simon is the house of Mary and Martha and Lazarus, of course. Um, And which one tells you the best? I think it was. Well, the Golden Legend, I'm just trying to uh, see which one uh, says it the most clearly, but the Golden Legend, which is again from the medieval era, uh, says Uh, This Mary Magdalene is she that washed the feet of our Lord and dried them with her hair and anointed them with precious ointment and did a solemn penance at the time of grace Um, and was the first that chose that best part, which was at the feet of the Lord and heard his preaching. Um, If you read all of the three examples of this anointing so we've got john 12 1 and we've got luke 7 36 it's pretty clear that the mary mary and martha from the house of simon was mary magdalene just as it says in the golden legend and if you read all of those three together it's pretty uh, obvious that it was mary magdalene so she anointed jesus with oil And not very much is made of that, but I think this is um, very important because to become the Christ or to become the Messiah, you have to be anointed with oil. The Christ or the Messiah means the anointed one, the anointed priest king. Um, Let me just um, maybe stop sharing. There we go. So we're back again. So um the the Christ is the anointed priest king. So is the Messiah. Mm-hmm. And it, it, it is not really a uh a spiritual or a sacred name. It can apply to, a, you know, a secular king. So King David was the Messiah. So was Cyrus the Great. He was called the Messiah because he let the Jews go out of Persia. Um So it's a secular king. When they are anointed, they are known as the Christ or the Messiah. And that's exactly the same ceremony that Queen Elizabeth II went through uh, when she was anointed back in the 1950s. She was anointed uh, with oil by the high priest, who is the Archbishop of Canterbury. Now, that's what's going on in this little ceremony. Um, Jesus is being anointed with oil. So he's being anointed. He was a prince, and now he's being anointed uh, with oil to become the king. And the person who does it is Mary Magdalene. So effectively, that is saying that Mary Magdalene was the high priestess, because only the high priestess would do something quite so important as anointing the next king of Judea. Um, So he became the king of the Jews. And if uh, we go back to my Edessa theory, uh, I apologize to listeners and readers um, that they don't know much about Edessa at present, but the queen of Judea at this time was Queen Helena of Edessa, Edessa Adiabene. So this royal family were the royal family of Judea at this very time. In the AD fifties, uh, Queen Helena owned the largest tomb and the largest palace in Jerusalem. It's just at the foot of the Temple Mount. They're just un- uncovering it now, doing some archaeology on that that uh, very palace. And it was Queen Helena of Edessa who bought the solid gold menorah for the temple, mm-hmm. Temple of Jerusalem. So you can see how closely linked this royal family was with uh, Judea and Judean politics. And remember that Queen Helena was a Nazarene Jew. She had converted to Judaism. And so her son, if she was the queen of the Jews, effectively, um, then her son would become the king of the Jews. And I think that's exactly what was happening in this small ceremony. the reason it was happening in a house was because uh, they'd probably been caught out. The king had died, and you know, in in these ancient cultures, you've got to st- <laughs> you've got to stamp your, you've got to make your mark very quickly, otherwise <laughs> someone else is going to take it from you. Yeah, and so you've got to have a coronation pretty damn quick in order to um, ensure the succession will come down to you. And I think that's what they're doing here. They had a um. Uh, they had a ceremony at the House of Simon instead of in the temple. And remember, they weren't fully Orthodox Jews, so it was probably very difficult for them at that stage to actually enter the temple. Um, That didn't happen until Jesus become high priest. And in my chronology, which is a a later chronology, 40 years later, that didn't happen until A.D. Sixty-two-ish, something of that nature. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, that's Very a good introduction to the the wealth and the royal family of Mary Magdalene. How that these were important people.
1: Good argument. Yeah, I'm I'm with you. It makes sense. And again, going against Robert Eisenman is I would never bet against him because his book, <laughs> uh, James the Brother of the Lord, is just such a well-researched, it's a wonderful stack. book. Yeah, it's um so- But
2: where he got there, all but the last hurdle, because he would not say that um, Mary Magdalene was Mary Bothas, because they are in the wrong era. They are 40 years displaced. Right. And he couldn't overcome that hurdle. So he had to say the history of one was based upon uh, the life of the other.
0: Yeah.
2: Um, but if you understand that this was an AD 60s story, not an AD 20s story, then it all matches. And we can go into this chronological chasm later, but that's um, that's a whole talk in itself. <laughs> right, yeah,
1: right, right, yeah. And as I tell the audience, yeah, get the book for more. So shall we travel to France? Unless there's a riot yes. in Paris.
2: <laughs> yeah, so we we dash off to France. Well, we've la, seen la. the reason why, because they lost all of their money. They lost yeah, the, the Jewish war. revolt. Again, this is all about the Jewish revolt era um and the house of Simon Bothus lost all their money they they bet everything on red and it came up black so they really um, thought
1: they were going to take over the romans I don't, Yeah. they really thought well, that
2: perhaps we we could go through this very quickly because sure, this sure. is um we have a lot of these prompts within the uh, gospel story uh, as to what this story was talking about and one of them Uh, is the parable of the vineyard owner. Um, And it says, uh, and this is a parable by Jesus. And uh, he says, there was a Lord who planted a vineyard and let it out to a tenant and went to a far country. And when the harvest drew near, he sent his servants to the tenant so he would receive his rent. But the tenant took his servants and they beat one and killed another and stoned another. So when the Lord the absentee landlord, goes to the vineyard, um, what shall he do to those tenants? He will miserably destroy those wicked men and let out his vineyard to another tenant who will pay their rent on time. And you've got to think, hold on, what's that got to do with the man of the people, Jesus? Right. He is uh, promoting the rights of absentee landlords to kill their tenants if they don't pay their rent. what does that have to do with the Christian ethic? Um, Well, it doesn't make any sense, of course, uh, until you realize that this was talking about Rome. This was talking about uh, the Jewish revolt. And of course, the Romans were in Judea, but these monarchs up in Edessa, remember that uh, Queen Helena was the queen of Judea, they thought they owned these lands and so to understand this parable all you need to do is change uh the absentee landlord with the edescent king and the tenant with the romans and then you read it again and it says there was an edescent king who had lands in judea yes they did they thought they were the um kings uh, and queens of judea and they let it out to the romans because the romans were on these lands of course we know they were And they went to a far country. They went back to Edessa, which is in northern Syria. And when the harvest drew near, he sent his servants to the Romans that he might receive his rent. But the Romans took his servants and beat one, killed another and stoned another. So when the Edessan king of these lands comes, what will he do to these Romans? He will miserably destroy these wicked Romans and let out his lands to another tenant who will pay their rent on time. And that's what the Jewish revolt was all about. It was a tax revolt against Rome because they thought they owned these lands and they should receive rent, tribute. But the Romans were on these lands and the Romans were asking for tribute from the Odessans. Uh, (laughs) This is a tenant asking for rent from the landlord. (laughs) Um, Good trick. (laughs) It's it's great if you can do it, but, you know... (laughs) And, of course, um, so they started this Jewish revolt, and they lost. Uh, and that's how they lost all of their money. So they bet everything on this revolt against Rome, and they lost. And so they had to go into exile. Um, so we'll like, come on like to this later. The Jesus Marcos. Car-
1: like Imelda Marcos had, <laughs> to, <she> had <laughs> yes. to grab all her shoes and go to France. Huh?
2: It It happens all the time, doesn't yeah. it? You know, people... Yeah.
1: All the time. Th- these
2: rich and wealthy people, they, they bet everything sometimes, and sometimes they lose. And... Get on a
1: helicopter yep. and get out of Dodge. <laughs> In this case, <laughs> it
2: was sandals, not shoes, right? <laughs> yeah.
1: And on a boat without any sta- – she just floated with the sails or something, the legend goes. Just yeah, by itself. L-
2: Like the um, prime minister of Afghanistan, I will stand <laughs> with my people – until i see the helicopter leaving and then i'll jump on the helicopter yeah I'm
1: out of here. <laughs> a bag full of million dollars
2: <laughs> yes i oh, did um so yeah uh what do, what do they say um life history doesn't repeat it it just mimics itself or something yeah. what's the same? it, it rhymes. rhymes it rhymes yes of course it just rhymes and it does uh, mark twain um And
1: there you have it, you shining crazy diamonds. Ralph shows there's just something about Mary. In our second part, we travel to France for her legend. Please support this Red Pill Cafeteria for the bonus, or if you find any value in the content. It will cost you less than a buck per episode, and that's a deal of your many lifetimes. Thanks for being here. Thanks for being yourself your true self here in the desert of the real hello and goodbye as always